0: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, Look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make
0: you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit
1: follow. On this episode of Newt's World, this President's Day marks the 50th anniversary of President Richard Nixon's historic trip To the People's Republic of China. The week-long visit from February 21st to 28th, 1972, was the first time a U.S. President had visited the People's Republic of China. When Nixon arrived in Beijing, it ended 25 years of no communication or diplomatic ties between the two countries and was a step in normalizing relations. Nixon described his visit as the week that changed the world. My guest is someone who served as personal aide, special assistant, then deputy assistant to President Nixon. He was responsible for the planning and execution of the president's schedule and appearances, plus oversight of the White House advance and television offices. He was acting chief of protocol for President Nixon's 1972 historic trip to China. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dwight Chapin, author of the new book, The President's Man, the memoirs of Richard Nixon's trusted aid. Dwight, thank you for joining me. I'm really delighted to have you on to discuss this historic anniversary and, frankly, to discuss Nixon, who I think was a remarkable figure and who dominated American politics as much as any one person for almost 30 years. And while a lot of people's memory is only Watergate, there was immensely more to Nixon than that, including his winning one of the largest majorities in American history in his reelection campaign. And as I understand it, you knew Richard Nixon longer and more intimately than almost any other person outside of his immediate family.
0: Newt, first of all, it's great to be on with you. And it is a special anniversary, the 50th anniversary of his trip to China. I started with him when I was a senior at USC in Southern Cal, and he was running for governor of California. He had lost to Jack Kennedy in 1960 and then in 1962 decided he was going to run to be governor of California. He wanted to keep his political life moving, and he made that fateful decision. And he lost as you very well know, which may be one of the most significant things about his whole background. But I got involved as a very young man and I ran the field offices in Ventura County, Santa Barbara County and the San Fernando Valley section of Los Angeles. And my job was to put together campaign offices. At that time they worked precinct sheets And I filled those offices with volunteers. And as a very young man, it gave me exposure to him. And from that grew my involvement over the later years.
1: I have to ask you with maybe a brief detour, because I noticed that you also worked for the Democratic mayor of Los Angeles, Sam Yorty, who was a remarkable character in his own right. Could you chat briefly about your experience with Yorty and why you went to work for him?
0: Well, yes, he was a Democrat, but the office of mayor of Los Angeles was nonpartisan. And Sam was a character. He caught my imagination. At this point, I'm in high school. So I'm, you know, going door to door in the precincts out in the San Fernando Valley, knocking on the door, handing out literature and trying to get people to put on a bumper sticker. It was grassroots, you know, at base level, so to speak.
1: I'm curious, part. What was it that made Yorty so remarkable?
0: What made him remarkable to me was his straightforwardness. I mean, he was like a no BS type guy. I mean, this is a guy that called it as he saw it. He was controversial. It was very early on in the use of media, but he was great on television and. He just put himself out there kind of in a very uninhibited way. And that intrigued me.
1: I'm asking in part just out of personal curiosity, because many years ago I read The Ninth Wave by Gene Burdick, which is a novel that Burdick says was really based on Yorty and exploring the impact of television and the way in which things occur in a rhythmic manner, I mean, he draws the ninth wave from the concept of surfing. That the ninth wave is bigger than the first eight, and I was always intrigued with Yordy just because of the imagery that Burdick, who had been a political science professor at Berkeley, that he put into this novel. So that's why I had to ask you about him.
0: Great, well, I'll have to read it.
1: By comparison, I mean Yorty is this kind of colorful, charismatic figure, and in a way, Nixon is a very disciplined, hard-working much different personality than you already. What was it like the first time you met Nixon?
0: Well, the first time I met Nixon, he came to our campaign headquarters on Wilshire Boulevard, and they had put out a notice that he was going to be coming. He had, at that point, this mystique. I mean, He had been a congressman, a senator, vice president under Eisenhower. Then, of course, the well-covered election against Jack Kennedy. So when he came in to run for governor, it was like he was really a political celebrity. So meeting the former vice president was always a thrill. And he had that persona that he was something different. There was something about him. And so when he came to the campaign headquarters, we were all summoned to be there And he walked around and he spent time with each and every one of us asking a little about our background and thanking us for working for him. But it was a very short meeting. And of course, as good political figures do, it doesn't take much to energize the troops once they've met the candidate.
1: So you do mention in your book that working on Nixon's 62 campaign for governor changed your life. How was that?
0: Well, I always had to have a summer job and I didn't have one. So in 1962, my dad arranged for me to go into the campaign headquarters on Wilshire Boulevard. And when I did, I met a young lawyer by the name of Herb Kalmbach, who interviewed me for about half hour. And he said, I'll be right back. And he left the office, came back and said, come with me. And we went down the hall and I met a young 35-year-old man who was campaign manager for Nixon, and his name was Bob Haldeman, who later became Haldeman's chief of staff. And I say in my book that not many people know when something like this happens, that that was the day that changed my life forever and for the better. Because both Bob and then Herb Kambach became incredible mentors of mine and involved in my life for many years.
1: So you ended up working your heart out in the campaign and then Nixon lost. I mean, how did you react election night to realizing that Pat Brown had won?
0: I didn't react very well. I was very naive. I may be one of the only people on the campaign staff that thought he was going to win. I stayed up all night. I was at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. He was upstairs in the suite with his key staff members. And the next morning, I was in the ballroom waiting, and there was a rumor he might come down, and all of a sudden, the elevators pop open, and in comes Richard Nixon up onto the stage. And that's when he gave his famous talk that gentlemen, this is my last press conference. You're not going to have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And then shortly thereafter, Howard K. Smith did his famous television show on ABC that called The Political Obituary of Richard Nixon. He even went so far, Newt, that he had Alger Hiss on that show too. We
1: should say for the listeners that Alger Hiss was a very, very senior person in the State Department who it was alleged was a communist. He denied it, ultimately ended up with Richard Nixon at the time on the right committee, proving, I think, beyond any reasonable doubt that Hiss had lied and that, in fact, Hiss was a communist. The national establishment had sided with Hiss, and it was almost a little bit like the incorrigibles argument today. I mean, Hiss came from the establishment He was an elegant sort of Ivy League personality with the right family background. And how could someone like that be accused of being a communist agent? The only problem for the people who defended Hiss was that we now know as a fact that at Yalta, Hiss actually met with Stalin about three in the morning to get a personal medal for all of the help he had been to the Soviet Union during World War II. And he clearly was a communist agent. But it was one of the dividing lines in American politics that made Nixon so deeply hated. The left and the Ivy League types just loathed Nixon because he had taken one of their good friends and told the truth about him. It was an amazing moment.
0: Amazing moment. And I try to detail some of that in my book. And you could not be more accurate. The elite and the left side of the media tried to hammer Nixon with this. Not try, they did. And Nixon paid a price for it all the way through his political career. But one time, John Connolly told me, he was talking to a group of us at the White House, and he said, you know, one of the most important things you do in politics is pick your straw enemies. And I would say that Alger Hiss was not a straw enemy, he was a real enemy. And Nixon absolutely made mincemeat of him. And those that were inclined to favor him never forgot it. it, never got over it.
1: So Nixon now has given his famous speech. I mean, I remember it vividly at the time, because I'd been a volunteer in Georgia for the Nixon Lodge campaign. And I found the election night, 1960s, one of the longest nights of my life, as we gradually lost Illinois and Texas. And what I'm personally convinced, this goes back to the whole current fight, there's no doubt in my mind that the Democrats stole both Illinois and Texas in 1960. But Nixon, because we were in the middle of the Cold War, because he understood the dangers of the Soviet Union, refused to contest it. And so Nixon has now announced he's out of politics. He goes to New York, becomes part of a very, very important law firm. At the same time, he's still active politically, even though he's not a candidate. And as I remember, you go to the Republican National Convention in 1964, working with Nixon. What was that like? I mean, so the the 64 convention was a wild convention with Barry Goldwater being nominated, the moderate Republicans up in arms, the news media in a froth. And Nixon in many ways was the statesman of the party at that point.
0: Absolutely. This was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The first thing that happened was the convention was in San Francisco. So delegates had to get out there early. So Nixon picked the Sunday night before the convention started. And he and Mrs. Nixon hosted a reception at the St. Francis Hotel to thank everyone that had supported them back in 1960. And this reception that they held, everybody in town that was a delegate came. The important part in regards to myself was that they placed me right ahead of Nixon. So as the delegates came in, the guests for the reception, they would first shake hands with me, this young guy that nobody knew, and I was standing right next to Nixon, and then Mrs. Nixon was the next person. Well, we worked it in such a way as that I would introduce myself, and they would say their name, and of course, he's kind of listening to me and this exchange. So he's immediately refreshing his memory. Most of these delegates he knew personally anyway. He had a phenomenal memory for political people around the country. But that reception went on for hours, and he thanked everybody for coming and so forth. It was one little step in the start of the comeback. And then on Tuesday, he went out and addressed the convention hall he knew, and Bob Haldeman had shared with me from some of the strategic meetings they had had in New York, Nixon knew Goldwater was going to lose. And when Nixon had run for governor in California, he ran against Joe Schell, a very popular conservative. So it was important that Nixon kind of heal the wounds of this effort that he had done in 62. And so by coming in and putting all of his chips even though I knew Goldwater was going to lose, he put all of his chips on backing Goldwater. He was one of the few Republicans that did that. I mean, everybody else ran for the hills. Nixon went out there. He campaigned, Newt, harder than Goldwater. I mean, <laughs> that was the joke. But that was what Richard Nixon was all about. He had a strategy and he executed it.
1: Well, and he comes back in 65, 66, I remember correctly. He again goes out and campaigns more than any other
0: Republican. Absolutely. We had this thing when you came out of 60 and lost and you came out of 62 and lost, you had this Nixon loser thing and we had to convert that to Nixon the winner. So his efforts when he went out there for congressional candidates in 1966 was hugely important. And as you will Well recall, that's when Lyndon Johnson really made a mistake. At a press conference in Manila, he calls Nixon a chronic campaigner. And as a result of that, the National Committee gives Nixon a half hour of airtime, and it does nothing but help renew his credentials. And then uh, you'll get a kick out of this. On election night, I happened to be in the hotel room with him, Bob Finch, and some of the other people And as these congressional candidates would win around the country, Mr. Nixon would call them and congratulate them. He would say, Charlie, I knew you were gonna win because remember how great that crowd was. And he would repeat the night that he had been out there campaigning for him. He really tied it all together. And it was very important in terms of bringing back the Republican party and setting Nixon up.
1: I studied Nixon and people tend to forget that prior to the rise of Reagan, Nixon was probably the most prominent modern Republican trying to bring the party into the 20th century and trying to offer a true national vision. And part of it was just his sheer work ethic. I mean, I don't know of anybody in American politics who has ever worked harder than Nixon.
0: I agree with you. I try to really bring that across in the president's man. He loved to work. I mean, politics and all of that exchange, it was his DNA. When he was at Duke Law School, the nickname for him there was Iron Butt. And his friends called him that because he was always sitting at his desk working. It was like the guy got his infusion for life from working. Either that or from going out to baseball games or sporting events. He loves sports, as you may know. But working, that was his hobby. It wasn't work for him. It was his hobby.
1: So you're part of this campaign team. And when you go back and look at it, while it seems inevitable in retrospect, when 67 begins, you've got George Romney as this very attractive moderate governor. You've got Rockefeller lurking in the corners still with the New York delegation and with all of his personal money. You have Reagan has just won as the governor, but has a national audience in part out of his movie career and in part out of his extraordinary speech for Goldwater in October of 64. So all these things are swirling. And Nixon is just kind of methodically working his way through it. Were you in any doubt during 68 about getting the nomination or did it seem to you that it was all going to work out?
0: Well, I guess the answer to that is that in politics, you are always in doubt as to wh- exactly what your opposition is going to do. And that builds in the incentive to be tracking it all and building up defenses. Romney, as you know, slid his own throat when he said that he had been duped on his trip to Vietnam. That was the end of Romney. And he was kind of a stalking horse, we felt, for Rockefeller. Rockefeller really never had much of a chance. And Nixon just kept working that center ground. He was smart enough and knew the conservatives that Reagan had to coalesce. Reagan had the popularity and Reagan had people that were out testing the waters for him. But we had the people. We went in and got Cliff White, who was one of the key people, Dick and this is to the credit of John Mitchell, the campaign manager, we picked off key conservative people that had worked very hard for Goldwater and knew the conservative movement, and we brought them into our fold. Nixon was very good at this one particular thing, Newt. He didn't stick with his same staff for campaign to campaign. He would always have things for the people that had been involved previously to go do. He put them on committees, put them on to write white papers and everything. But he was always infusing the campaign with new blood, always bringing in the new people that had never won before and were hungry, realizing that you needed that kind of energy. You needed that kind of capacity. And he thought that way. He really outmaneuvered all of this opposition that came along. And I don't believe they really had a chance because we kept winning primaries. We could not afford to lose a primary because we had to have Nixon established. Again, I go back to that loser thing. We had to have him established as a winner. And in The President's Man, I really tried to bring that across as to what that strategy was.
1: You refer in your book, to the complex relationship between Nixon and Eisenhower. How would you describe that? It's always puzzled me.
0: Eisenhower was such a dominant figure. I mean, you've got Mr. Nixon coming along. He's been a congressman, a senator. He becomes vice president. The scandal that he goes through when he's a vice presidential candidate. And Tom Dewey contacted Nixon's and said that maybe Nixon should step aside. And Nixon decides he's going to address the nation with the famous checker speech and saves himself. But all of that kind of operation put him into a lesser position, probably with Eisenhower at the outset, so that there was a lot of ground that needed to be made up with Eisenhower. Eisenhower was not the way that I understand it. Now, you as a historian, you may know more on this than I do, but my understanding is that Eisenhower kind of picked up off the Charles de Gaulle model and wanted a separation, the mystique between the leader and those that were immediately under him. And and Eisenhower had this grand personality. I mean, he was beloved, if you will. So he assigns to Nixon, the political type stuff. Nixon not only suffered in some ways by his pursuit of Hess and all of that with the Eastern establishment and the media, but he also became the political iron man, if you will, that was always out there having to carry the political water. And Eisenhower, I don't know that he was that enamored with political figures I think that there was always kind of a separation there. I do want to tell a real quick story. I went down to Gettysburg with Nixon. This is in 1967 when he went down to seek Eisenhower's advice, particularly on the Vietnam War. And we drove down from Washington and Nixon and Eisenhower met in the Gettysburg office that Eisenhower had. And they finished and they come walking out and Mr. Nixon motions me over And he says, General, I want you to meet another Dwight. And Eisenhower was from Kansas, and I was from Kansas. And it was one of the most thrilling moments of my whole career with Richard Nixon, meeting General Eisenhower.
1: I find it interesting that you refer to him as General, not President.
0: He did. He said, General, I want you to meet another Dwight.
1: I think that Ike actually preferred General.
0: I don't know on that, but maybe so.
1: So Nixon wins in 68, and what is really an amazingly close race that for a little while towards the end looked like Humphrey might pull it out. Although I think most analysts believe that had Wallace not been in the race, that Nixon would have gotten most of that vote because they were very anti-liberal. Humphrey had been sort of the leading liberal of his generation. You then get an opportunity to go to the White House and to be in the White House. What was that like? I mean, here you are, you've come a long way from high school and Sam Yorty by this stage.
0: Boy, is that an understatement. Yes. Well, it was thrilling. And this is all happening very fast. I never had a chance to think, boy, do I want to go to the White House? It was we won, and that was the next logical step. And we had to evolve into what it was that we did. You are aware of the name Bryce Harlow. Bryce Harlow was one of the finest men that ever served in either the Eisenhower administration or the Nixon administration, and he was a genius in terms of congressional relations and so forth. He was an experienced hand, and I think one of the most helpful things for me was Bryce and his advice, his guidance. I remember he said, Dwight, this is temporary. You have a privilege here that is one that very few young men get. And basically, the lesson was don't let it go to your head. Keep grounded. Realize that, as I say, this was a real privilege.
1: I got to know Bryce Harlow late in his career, and he was sort of a legend. I mean, there was a sense that he was one of the great wise men who understood what you could and could not do and how to get it done.
0: Let me mention one thing here. I was going through the films of the China trip. You let off talking about China. The other day, I was going through all of the film clips. And here's Nixon coming out of the south grounds of the White House. It'll be 50 years tomorrow that this happened. He comes out of the diplomatic entrance and he shakes hands, goes down kind of a receiving line shaking hands with all of the people that were there and then he goes to the microphone and he leads off he says i want to thank the bipartisan leadership of congress mike mansfield carl albert for being here with the republican members and that really struck me you know it's national news now if bipartisan leaders go down and meet with the president but what bryce harlow and nixon put in place when Nixon became president, I got a memorandum the first week. And that memorandum said, I want you to schedule the bipartisan leaders to come in every Tuesday morning. And if we miss on Tuesday, have them come Thursday. And for the first few years of the Nixon administration, every week, every week, he met with those bipartisan leaders. He also had Jerry Ford and Dirksen and the guys on the Republican side. They had a private session with him. Keep in mind, he had a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House, and they got through all that legislation and they got it through because the men talked to one another. They sat down with one another. They knew one another. They trusted one another. Were they competitive? Yes. Yes, they were competitive, but it was such a different way of operating.
1: So Nixon's running for re-election, and I think clearly one of the great pageantries is to run for re-election in Beijing and Moscow. And You actually end up with both those assignments. What was it like trying to negotiate with the Chinese, first of all? I mean, for them, this is the great opening moment with what has been their enemy for a quarter century, and you show up.
0: Well, let me tell you, when you're negotiating to go to China, and of course, this was such a historic trip, it's not like negotiating to go to Cleveland or something. I mean, you go in there and you work with the state chairman. You kind of lay down what the laws are from the White House point of view and how things are going to work. This was an entirely different kind of scenario. And when they first started out, when Henry came back from the secret trip and Nixon went and announced it at Burbank Studios that the Chinese had given him this invitation. The president had myself, and Bob Haldeman, into the Oval Office. Kissinger joined us a little later. But he was talking about, we'll take a Jetstar, which is a small airplane, not Air Force One, a Jetstar. He says, and I'll take eight or nine people. And his whole concept was this was going to be more like a business meeting. Then as it evolved and we get down to the end of the line, there are 391 people in our party. So this whole thing expanded from a concept of being kind of a business meeting to this massive thing. Now, the thing that became so critical on China and ties into all of the politics that you are referring to is the fact that the big thing becomes television. And as the Chinese start grasping how the world attention is focusing on this thing. And as the White House and Nixon and so forth start focusing on it, we realize what's happening and that our whole nation is going to go to China with Richard Nixon. And it was of such magnitude that as you undoubtedly recall, I mean, in the morning hours or evening hours, all across America, everybody was tuned in to the China trip. And we didn't have the media fragmentation that you have now. We had ABC, CBS, and NBC. And so the focus was much more concentrated than what we have in the split media world that we live in now. So all of a sudden, the planning and everything that we put together, we find that the Chinese are grasping the significance of all this, because they want to open up the nation. I mean, this wasn't just us. They had an agenda and they wanted to come rejoin the world community, if you will. But the main point I want to get across is this was evolutionary. The whole way that it unfolded kept growing and growing and ended up being that magnitude that it was.
1: How many weeks or months did you spend planning and laying out the China trip?
0: When Nixon announced on the fifteenth of July, that's when he went to Burbank Studio. After that announcement of the invitation to visit, we went back to Washington. And I moved from the West Wing where my office was. I moved to the bomb shelter. Nell Yates was my secretary and Ron Walker, who was in charge of my advance operation. And then the military aides and the Secret Service, we set up a headquarters. And we did nothing but work on China for the next two and a half, three months. And then I went with Kissinger in October of 1971. We went over with basically these big notebooks and our idea of a plan of how it might work. And our problem became that the Chinese would listen to us. They were all ears listening to us and so forth, but we would get no answers back. And the importance of that is, I referenced if we were making a trip to Cincinnati, if we were going to Cincinnati, I could come back and the president say, what's our agenda? What's going to happen? And I'd say, well, it's this, 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 and this. On the Chinese trip, we wouldn't get answers. For example, we never knew when Nixon would meet with Chairman Mao. It ended up he met with him the first afternoon, It was one of the most important strategic little pieces of the outset because it happened shortly after we got to Beijing, and it kind of gave a a seal of approval to the trip and everything that unfolded.
1: When you saw Mao for the first time, what was your reaction to Mao?
0: Well, I never saw Mao. You
1: didn't? Okay.
0: Let me explain. I was sitting in a meeting with Secret Service and our advanced people, and Secret Service agent came in and said, Premier Cho Enlai is right outside. So my counterpart was Han Su. Han Su was later to become the first ambassador to the United States after we got past the liaison offices. So I go out and Han Su says to me, and Cho and Lai is standing right there, he says, the chairman wants to meet with the president, Chairman Mao. Just right out of the blue. So I went to the Nixon suite and went in. And I said, sir, he was there in a sport coat sitting in one of those big chairs with these yellow pads scattered all around him, you know, doing his notes, just like I'd seen him a hundred times in hotel rooms. He's there working. And I said, sir, Chairman Mao wants to meet with you right now. Oh, oh. And he's up. He takes off the sport coat, puts on his suit jacket, and he's out the door within seconds. And so... The people that went off with him to see Chairman Mao, it was a very limited number. It was Henry Kissinger, Winston Lord, who later became an ambassador to China, Bob Taylor, and Nixon. So it was the four of them. Those were the only four. In doing my research and going back through all this for the president's man, Haldeman was very upset. Not upset that Nixon went to meet with Mao, but he was upset by how it all happened because We didn't know where they were. We had no communications with them. I mean, we spend these hundreds of millions of dollars making sure that, you know, the guy carrying the black case with the nuclear secrets in it, that guy's lost somewhere. We have no communications with the president. And we, you know, in the United States, this would never happen. And yet we let this happen. And Ron Ziegler, who was press secretary, comes in and he said, what's this about Nixon being off to see Mao? And he says, what am I supposed to tell the press? Are we supposed to tell the press that we have no idea where the president is? So it was kind of a complicated little period.
1: That's wild. So now Kissinger had coached you some on dealing with the Chinese.
0: He did. He did. He was wonderful.
1: Was that helpful?
0: Yes. We had coming from the State Department, coming from the CIA, all this background information on China, none of which was right. It was so old, so out of date, so it ended up it didn't matter. But in any case, Kissinger was extremely helpful. You know, when you look at China and this whole unfoldment, you've got to understand that the visionary and architectural genius, in my opinion, was Richard Nixon. The builder that was along with him was Henry Kissinger. And it was a unique combination of these two men that came together and made this happen. And Henry's primary goal, first of all, he vetoed John Ehrlichman taking the role that I had because he didn't want anybody as strong as Ehrlichman to be interfering and have any conduits back to Nixon other than what Henry wanted himself. And that's how I ended up getting that position on that as acting chief of protocol on that trip. But Henry explained to me on the airplane going over and in numerous meetings at the White House, how the Chinese worked, how they thought, how they operated, what the meaning of face was, so that us that are typical Americans handled it differently. It wasn't that we didn't protect what we believed in as American citizens. It's that we were dealing with a whole new nation in terms of the ways that we had dealt with other nations. It was just so much different.
1: You deal with the Chinese, and then you turn right around, and now you're dealing with the Russians. Yes. Which must have been culturally very, very different.
0: Yes. So in February, we're with the Chinese, and then we switch over, and we're getting ready to do the summit in Moscow, which where the president signed the strategic arms limitation talks. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that when we started dealing with the Russians, it was like dealing with a bunch of thugs. The Chinese were gracious. I mean, they may have been wanting to slit our throats, but they would have done it graciously. (laughs) The Russians are taking sledgehammers and trying to beat our brains out. In China, they may not tell you something that is going to happen, but when they do tell you, it happens exactly the way they tell you, and it's very up above board and honest. In Moscow, we found that dealing with the Russians was just like Night and day difference. We got through it, but it took a lot more intestinal fortitude and it was much more difficult.
1: I understand one of the warnings you got in Russia was that if you met an attractive woman in a public space, you should assume she was a spy.
0: Oh, well, they tried to seduce our advanced men, they tried to seduce others. The female secretaries that would travel on our trips were instructed to change their clothes and everything under a sheet because the cameras were spying on them in their rooms. You would walk down the hallway and all of a sudden you'd see this door that was kind of between rooms. And inside the rooms was one-way glass and the Russians would be in these corridors spying into the rooms. We had machines where WACA, the White House Communication Agency, along with the CIA, took and made tapes with all kinds of different tracks on it so that when you played it it was music people talking different languages and everything and we would set though between us to talk back and forth to one another because we knew that everything was being recorded and eavesdropped on
1: it's amazing and tomorrow we'll have part two on watergate After all this, Nixon wins one of the largest election victories in history. The momentum seems to be there. And then the Watergate scandal breaks, which really began June 17, 1972, with a break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters by some guys who really were stunningly incompetent. I mean, this was sort of a low-level screw-up that then evolves into a cover-up, and it's the cover-up that really begins to be like a cancer. Thank you to my guest, Dwight Chapin. You can get a link to buy his new book, The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.